good to see everyone here today. I told them uh, not not to do that, <laughs> but it's uh, always a pleasure and uh, a joy and a grace. Um, we are uh, continuing along and finishing up a, a series on marriage, and today we're going to consider what does the Bible say about being single and the gift and the grace and the goodness of being single. So that means a couple of things before I read the passage. If you are feeling the need and desire to get married, that desire is good. But what does it mean that you're not married? And how can you use your distinct stage of life that may be permanent for the glory of God? But also it means for children, those in youth, this means that maybe not everyone is meant to be like mommy and daddy and that your parents are married, but not everyone may be called to be married. And it means also... For those of us who are single in college and youth, when you begin dating, it may give you a different perspective of how dating should be and what it means that you're not dating or that you are just called in a life of singleness for a season. And how do you make sense of all that in your different ages and different life stages? And so I pray the message could speak a little bit into this. And I'm going to read the passage for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'll be reading from verse 25 to verse 40. And it's a rather deep and complicated passage, but in some ways, very poetically simple. So let me read this for us, and we'll get right into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting with verse 25. This is God's word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, as you are Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. But if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have the worldly troubles, have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having a desire under control, and has determined that in his heart to keep her, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. The wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And this is God's word. Fairly complicated passage. It almost seems like he's contradictory or just sort of speaking in circles, but we'll take a look at some of his central points as it relates to being single. And we're going to consider this from three perspectives as usual. Singleness. 
And I want to affirm three things that I think the passage does. First, singleness is good. And that implies actually that singleness may be permanent. Many of us in our day and age think singleness is punishment. But the Bible seems to indicate singleness could be good and permanent. Secondly, marriage is not ultimate. It's not your ultimate goal in life, even though we spent four messages about the goodness of marriage. And then thirdly, Paul even implies in certain circumstances, being single can be even better. And not in the way that you would think, not in the way to say, well, I would have so much freedom. I could become who I am and discover who I am. So singleness means that I could just think about my own time and my own resources. That's not what Paul's trying to get at. He's saying there's a different reason why singleness is better. So let's look at this. Singleness is good. Marriage is not ultimate. And singleness can be better. So first, singleness is good. Let me read for us verses 25 to 28 because that's a central argument that Paul puts forth why singleness is good. And you have the freedom to be good. Verse 25 says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as the one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. That means if he's single. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek to get married, in other words. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. But if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So basically, Paul is saying this. He's saying, you have the freedom to be single. You have the freedom to get married. But in the present distress, it's better to be single. And then he goes back, but, you know, if you really have to get married, you're not in sin. That's his argument. You could be single, you could be married, but in this moment, my advice would be probably better to be single. But if you can't control it, you really want to get married, you're not in sin. That's basically his argument. We see in verse 25 that Paul is addressing a question about single women. He calls them betrothed. In other words, we could think about it like a prearranged marriage. And the issue that he's trying to address in showing his pastoral heart is this. People are coming to him. Single people are coming to him people who are women who are betrothed in a prearranged marriage, so to speak, and they're saying, there's a present distress. Paul, what am I supposed to do? Should I fulfill my marriage vows? Should I follow through on this arrangement? Should I go through with the engagement? What do we do, Paul, because life is really difficult right now? And he's giving him his pastoral heart. And this is what Paul says. Automatically, you know there's freedom because he says, I'm not going to give you a law. I'm not going to bind your conscience. But I'm going to give you my thoughts and my pastoral wisdom. I have wisdom and I have a judgment, but it's not law. In fact, the commentator, Andrew Thistleton, says this. In these verses, Paul, the pastor, he's thinking out loud. He's thinking out loud on a very pastoral issue here. And the reason for this is because in verse 26, there's a present crisis. We won't spend too much time on this, but this is basically what the church at Corinth is going through. One assessment is that in the 40s and 50s, there was a real severe famine caused by grain shortages. And because there's no grain, that means there's no money, there's no way to eat, there's no economic power. In some ways, you could think about it as the Great Depression. It is maybe even what we see here in this economy, a V-shaped recovery, but without actually coming up. The markets are depressed. People are worrying about their jobs. They're not generating revenue. They don't have any economic power or resources. And they're saying to Paul, it's really bad. The economy is no good. The stock market has crashed. Crypto has decreased by 50%. I don't have any economic wealth. 
but I'm engaged to this guy. Paul, should I still get married? The guy I'm getting married to also has no grain. Well, what should I do? What's, my, what's, the, what's the wisdom here? And Paul says in verses 25 to 28, this is what I think. I'm thinking out loud here. Paul is saying this present crisis is probably better just to be single. Because when you get married, as glorious as it is, it does make life on a practical level very complicated. There are other issues that you have to think about. Verse 28 says, yet those who are married will have worldly troubles. Now, the commentators Gordon Fee and Leon Morris say this about verse 28. Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and this is what they're saying. In light of the troubles you're already experiencing, who needs the additional burden of marriage as well? And Leon Morris says, when high seas are raging, it's no time for changing ships. That's his pastoral wisdom, and there's a lot of dating application because of this. But at least it affirms there's a time, there's a moment where singleness is really good. And he actually doesn't say just for the present crisis, but later on he says, singleness for your life may be the better option. But he says it's a good, legitimate course of action. It's something that you could generally consider. Verse 27, he says this, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then in verse 28, he says, If you do marry, you're not sinning. But if women wants to marry, a woman wants to marry, she also has not sinned. So she's, Paul is very pastoral here. And basically, at the end of the day, this is what he's saying. There's a present crisis, economic turmoil, better to be single. It's good, in fact. It's not a secondary state of affairs. It's not second-class citizenship. It's good to be single, especially because of this shortage and economic turmoil. But if you get married, you're not really in sin. He presents singleness, friends, as a valid option, but in some ways a better option, especially in this present crisis as we just read. Now, friends, I know that it, that's hard to kind of take in. Now, singleness is good. You've heard this before if you've grown up in the church, but you desire to be married, and you want desperately to get married. And what I think the Bible is saying is that that desire in of itself is good. But it also wants you to see in the gospel, there's a freedom to say singleness is also good. And there's a calling there. And in some ways, pastorally, Paul will show us in verse 37, when you're single, your life will not find ultimate satisfaction. Your freedom, your economic resources, you can figure out for yourself. But if you're married, you also won't feel fully satisfied. Neither singleness nor marriage will be the ultimate answer. It won't satisfy you completely. And Paul is saying... That's because singleness is good just as much as married life is, because at the end of the day, the love of Jesus Christ is going to be better than both. As he loves you as a single person, and as you express your love in marriage, either situation will never fully satisfy in your life. If you talk to the singles, they want to get married. If you talk to married people, they struggle in marriage. And that's because the ultimate goal and answer in our lives is not to seek singleness forever, nor to be married, but to say that Jesus Christ and his love for me as my bridegroom is the one who transforms me, satisfies me, sustains me, and he is the ultimate answer to the deepest desires of my heart. But singleness is good. Eric Klinenberg, in his book, Going Solo, he traces in this book this, the rise of singleness and the positive societal benefits 
that singleness is good. And I only share this because this is not a Christian book. It's just a sociological perspective. You could disagree with it, but at least there's one guy who wrote a book that says singleness on the practical level is really good. And he quotes all these really smart people. And he says, De Tocqueville found that in solitude, you can abide by a moral code. You can discover what good morality is. And that binds citizens together so that when you're isolated and you think and contemplate about the deeper things of life, you realize there's much more commonality in humanity that gels citizens together. Durkheim also argued that in private time, individuals spend their own, allows them to preserve their energy, build an appetite for participation, a desire to get together that can be unleashed for societal benefits. And friends, if the pandemic and the lockdown is not the example of what Durkheim is trying to say, I don't really know what it is. I know that people are careful, but when you're in solitude, it reveals that human beings made in the image of God are made to be in community. And so sometimes when you're in isolation, even as a single person, you could preserve energy, you could preserve sort of resources, but it shows you that you could go out into the world and connect and cultivate community. Klinenberg goes on and says, being alone was necessary because it allows the freedom to cultivate who you are, develop original ideas, make a productive return to the world. Those who are single have helped revitalize the public life of cities because they spend so much more time with friends and neighbors and they frequent bars and cafes and restaurants. Facts and surveys and studies show that cities with higher number of singles in some aspect enjoy a more thriving cultural center. Singles have a lot to contribute, and if that's true in the city, it also means that singles, friends, you're in a state of good position. You are called in some ways. You can add something vibrant to a church like New Life Press that needs your giftedness, your singleness. It is a grace that you could use to build up and bring an aspect of spiritual gospel vibrancy to our church because singleness is good. Now, before we go to our second point, let me just say this. An application for us on both ends is this. One, I think married people, we need to think about and consider, and maybe for the singles, to say and not talk about and treat people who are not married as second-class citizens, as if they're deficient or something's wrong. And I'm just as guilty of this as anybody. When you go up to someone who seems to be a quote-unquote great catch, the first thing we say is like, why are you single? You want to meet this person? Now, we think that what's wrong with her or him, something's got to be wrong. On paper, she seems or he seems to be a great catch, but that person's not married. And we treat them and discuss and engage in them conversations that imply your life's ultimate goal is just simply to get married. But that's not true because Paul says singleness is really good. And for the singles, it also means that you can embrace your position in life because it's not secondary, it's not deficient, it's not inadequate, it's God-given, it's gracious, and it is for you. But it also means for singles that you shouldn't look at marriage as a disease to say, I want my own life and I want my own time. Because your call to singleness means you use what you have for the glory of God to cultivate and to serve the church as many of the singles have. Marriage is not a disease. It's not a lesser form of life either because Paul is saying singleness is good just as much as marriage is good. But secondly, let's look at this where Paul in verses 29 to 31 also wants us to understand that married life is not ultimate is not the ultimate goal. And let me read these verses for us. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short or critical. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those as they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, really quickly, it sounds contradictory, but Paul, in his own way, is trying to say this. That word for short, appointed time, has grown very short, basically means that it's critical. In other words, it's not about quantity, but it's about a quality of time. Now, if we got into this, we'd have much more, if we had more time, we could get much deeper into this. Paul is saying basically this in his Corinthian theology. Jesus Christ came in first time, in the first time in this world, and he died on the cross. And then he was resurrected and he went to heaven. And then Jesus is going to come back the second time. Now, between these first two times, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, there is a period of time which we live in today. In this period of time, between the first and second Jesus in his coming, is what they call an already not yet time. And that means we are in a very critical time. That's why the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is about to come. There is a sense of urgency because Jesus will come like thief, a thief in the night, but it's saying that because Jesus came in the first time and he's going to come a second time, there is a new world order. There's a power that's been ushered in in the cross of Jesus. There's a hope and there's a power that we receive by faith in him that allows us to live with much hope and security in this life, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And he's saying, when you think about marriage and singleness, think about the glory and the power in this new world order in which we have with crystal clear clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first coming and eager hope and security looking for a second coming. That's what he's talking about when he's saying time has grown very short. All in a nutshell, very critical. And then in verses 29 and 31, he gives these paradoxical statements that seem contradictory, but ultimately just saying everything else in life, married life, single life, economy, goods, really legitimate, but none of that is going to be ultimate. He's saying live between the first and second coming as if none of these things are ultimate in your life. That's why he says in verse 29, from now on, let those who have wives live as they had none. He doesn't say, it's not literal, if you're married, don't divorce your wife. He's saying, if you're married, live as though marriage is not ultimate. That is not your identity. That's not your ultimate sense of security. That's why he says this about every aspect of human life here. There's sorrow, you mourn, but don't live, if you live as if you're mourning because we have a hope of Jesus. If you have joy, live as if you're joyful. In job and business economics, engaging the world around us, that's what he's saying in these verses, 29, 31. We have something so much better in the first coming of Jesus in the gospel for us. And when we put first things first and living a life of Christ, it means marriage is really good but not ultimate. It means money is really good and economy is really good, but money and wealth and economic purchasing power is really good, but it's not ultimate. Saying friendships and relationships are really good and necessary, but community and having a lot of friends is not ultimate. If you place Jesus Christ in this short, critical time as first, then you can put everything else in their respective places. They are good and legitimate, but they will never be your savior. They'll never be ultimate. If you're lonely and you feel like you want to be loved deep down in your heart and the answer to your loneliness and wanting to be loved is marriage, when you get married, you'll realize that your spouse will be crushed under your transcendent expectations. And it won't work. Your marriage will have difficulty. You'll crush your spouse. 
you want to date and have a boyfriend and girlfriend because you want to feel good about yourself and you think that you're attractive and you want to be in a relationship and it's fun and exciting and all these butterflies in your stomach and you get into a relationship and you break up and get into another one, you break up and you get into another one, you realize you get into a repetition, a repetitious pattern to realize the only thing you're learning is basically how to go into relationships and how to come out to relationships. That's not a good habit to learn, but it also says dating is not ultimate if you don't know that Jesus Christ is for you. Augustine has once said, we cannot love what is eternal unless we cease to love what is temporal. Learn to dismiss it before you are dismissed by it. Money, power, love, relationships. Marriage is included in this, and that's why the gospel and this heavenly reality is the only corrective for singles to approach marriage. The corrective is in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you don't over-desire marriage, say it's ultimate, but that you don't under-desire marriage and say, marriage is a disease. Why would everyone want to get married? Look how hard it is at the married couples in this church. The gospel speaks into both and says, yes, singleness is hard. Marriage is hard. Singleness is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. You know what is ultimate? The love of Jesus that is better than singleness and married life. Jesus Christ himself. The point is that in Jesus, you had the freedom to choose to be single or to be married. You had the freedom to do both because neither are ultimate, but only the love of Jesus Christ for you, who saved you and redeemed you, who's your bridegroom, who understands you and sees all your insecurities, and he saved you nonetheless, and he died for you on the cross. Now, brothers and sisters, in this culture today, it's sort of obvious. It's not earth-shattering. But for people back then, in the days of the church of the New Testament, this was even more jarring and paradigm shifting for them, more than today. Because in the ancient world, a woman's identity, a woman's worth in this patriarchal society, was all about marriage. Husband and family meant economic security, significance in life, meaning and purpose in your existence. That's what marriage meant for people back in the New Testament. That's what we see in the book of Ruth. A single woman back then was seen as a social outcast, a social failure. Something was wrong with that woman if she couldn't get married back then. And not only that, she had no hope to make a living for herself. Maybe as similar to today, but much more profound back then, I think. Similar to today where there's a stigma about being single. You're frustrated and you wonder, is something wrong with me? Something not right with me? Do I need a change? But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the gospel says. You are complete as being a single person because you have the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. And that's why the gospel and Paul's words are so refreshing because it shatters the assumption that we think the ultimate goal in life is just to get married. That's not true. The ultimate goal in life is to look to your husband, Jesus Christ, who died for you. Marriage is really good, friends. It's just not ultimate. Marriage is wonderful, but it can't save you from your sins. Marriage is glorious, and God will use your spouse to change you, but he changes you through Jesus Christ, all that you need. Last but not least, this will be uh, a challenging argument, but singleness is better. Singleness is better. Verses 32 to 38. Now, this may seem contradictory, to everything that we've seen in this series, this real marriage, this grand view of marriage in Ephesians, where we see a window into the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul has a very specific and logical 
rational reasoning here, very pragmatic, almost utilitarian. It says singleness is better. And he says it this way, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, anxieties means this. It's not just stress. It's talking about generally you have less concerns. Now, be careful here. It doesn't mean that single friends and brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean that if you're single, you have an easier life. That's not what it's trying to say. It's not saying single people have it much better. They have no concerns. There's no stress or pressure. That does a disservice to the single people, but it's saying pragmatically in terms of your schedule, in terms of your decision-making. There are a lot of complications when you get married because the two have become one flesh, and then you got to figure things out. It's another world of complexity with your time, your money, your words, your resources. You can't do everything that you would want as a single person because you have other responsibilities that are good, but they take place of things that you'd rather do if you're single. So Paul is very pragmatic here. In verse 28, he calls them worldly troubles. Singleness is better because married life brings other concerns and worldly troubles. And in verse 33, he says, an unmarried man is anxious for the things of the Lord. If you're single, you could devote yourself to the Lord. If you're married, you have legitimate concerns for your wife, then your interests are divided. And then verse 34, same thing with wives. If you're a single woman, you could devote yourself to the Lord. But if you're a married woman, you have good and legitimate concerns for your husband and for your kids. It's just the basic issue of pragmatics. But this is the application, friends. The key is verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, that's a hard verse, but this is what Paul's saying. Singleness is better, but in verse 35, if it's used for greater devotion to the Lord. So I know this is challenging. I know this is tough. But what he's trying to say here is that if you're saying, married life is tough, I can't live with somebody who's going to speak truth into my life. I like my own time. I like my own rest and relaxation. I want to use money in the way that I want. I want to pursue my career, all things which are good. But what Paul is trying to say in verse 35 is that the main and ultimate reason why singleness is better is not so that you could use all your resources for your own self, because that's a self-concentrated perspective, but to say singleness is good because then I could devote to the Lord in ways that I may not be able to as a married person. Now, that's a a little rough hitting for the singles. It means this. In some ways, on the pragmatics, for those of us who are single, you have a greater gift— and a stewardship to use your singleness in devotion to the Lord and the church in ways that the married couples may not be able to do, to serve in other ways of the church. And I'm just going to say this gently. You can figure it out between you and God, or we could talk about it. Uh, we can talk about it. Um, I guess we could talk about it in September when I come back, but until then, you could talk with your elders. Uh, you can struggle with this. You know, in some ways, there are plenty of resources that you can or opportunities to use our singleness as a gift to the Lord in education here at this church, in technology, we're putting on worship services in ways that we don't even see, that you love and you serve the Lord Jesus Christ in your spheres of influence, but you have, according to Paul, verse 35, a gift of singleness that allows you to have undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why it's better in the economics and the perspective of the kingdom. Singleness is better, but only better when you choose to cultivate a greater devotion to God. You don't choose singleness or marriage because it looks so hard. 
because you have intimacy issues. You don't reject marriage because you want personal freedom or autonomy. You don't reject marriage because you don't want the ugliness of your sin to come out every day. You reject marriage or you choose singleness because you have greater devotion to the Lord. You have greater resources and opportunities to serve the Lord in a distinct way that maybe married couples and families in their life stage or not. Okay, let's go into a couple applications as we turn the corner here. A couple applications. Well, one, we said use your singleness because it is better. Use your singleness for the greater kingdom in the church and use your singleness in a way that cultivates a stewardship of where God has called you. Um, by the way, this is why our singles ministry is called singles ministry. And it sort of, to me, shows the point that people don't like it to be called singles ministry because they think it's a scarlet letter highlighting that they're single. I kind of feel that's not the best biblical view. Singleness should be celebrated. It's a gift. That's why we call it singles. And we looked at every church in America to see how they looked at this one particular ministry. All these other different names like Bridges or Alpha and Omega, none of that really made any sense to me. And so I didn't want to put young adults because some singles, I, I, yeah, Singles is just a better name. And it's, a, it's a gospel name. This is a gift that we could use. But I want to give you, as ironic as it is, uh, even though singleness is better, I'm going to give you some applications that are grounded in here to help you think about dating if you have that desire. A couple of things. Recognize, according to Paul, that there is a season for not seeking marriage. There is a distressful time. So anyone who always needs to have somebody it's probably in marriage idolatry. If you're always in and out of boyfriends and girlfriends and relationships, and you always have to be in the relationship and be with somebody, you probably have marriage idolatry or relationship idolatry. But when you're going through a significant transition, it may be a good time just to be single and not be in a relationship in a big, major life transition. Maybe. Because like the Apostle Paul, it's not a law, it's just wisdom. Start a new job in a new city in a new state, Maybe wisdom will say, don't start a new relationship yet. You start a new school. You go from high school into college in your freshman year. Maybe it's the best time not to start a relationship. Graduate from college and go into the working force, maybe not the best time to start a relationship. If there's traumatic events and that you've been hurt and that you're mourning, there's a death in the family, and those are the most opportune times, actually, that you feel like you want to be in a relationship. But maybe that's not the best time because you have to mourn the death and the loss of someone in the family. Recognize there are seasons that maybe God will say this isn't the best time to seek a relationship. Because of verse 26, the present distress, remain as you are. You may be too emotionally charged. You may be, you may be too erratic, not as rational and wise, maybe not seeking counsel and community. A second application is this. Don't allow yourself too much involvement, deep emotional, romantic involvement with a non-believing person. Now, I know this is challenging, but the Bible is clear about this. You should only marry in the Lord. So this is for college students, for singles, for youth group. You should only marry in the Lord, and the Bible is very clear. You should only marry a Christian. That's verse 7, verse 39 in 1 Corinthians. It says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So the goal here is that 
what's challenging is then even when you go to dating conferences, and I've given this, and I've talked to single people, they're saying, I'm not going to marry this person because I know I've got to marry a Christian, but can't I date this person? Well, we have to do another seminar on that. But in some ways, if marriage is the highway of life that you can only get on the highway between Christian and Christian in the Lord, then the on-ramp is going to be dating. So how can you get on the on-ramp with a non-Christian if the goal of the on-ramp is to get on the highway with another Christian? If the goal of the highway is going to be Christianity and to marry in the Lord, you should only get on the on-ramp with somebody who's Christian. So people are always thinking, can I just date a non-Christian. They seem more fun and cooler, and they could get me better, and they, they just seem like more exciting than boring Christian men who go to church every Sunday. And honestly, I get it. You know, it may, you're probably right about that. You know, Christians aren't supposed to be cool. If you're cool, then you're probably not following the Lord too well. That's just the reality of it. Christian, Christians are dorks. So, but the gospel is saying you got to choose the dork and date the dork. Don't date the cool guy because he's going down the path of unrighteousness. That's what Paul is basically saying. But this is what happens, at least by testimony, both friends that I've known but also other pastors. If you find someone that marries, a Christian marries a non-Christian, you end up in the marriage with two things. For the Christian who married the unbeliever, one, you will either lose transparency because you can't share the things that are deepest on your heart. Gospel education, raising your children instruction of the Lord, missions, worship, you'll lose transparency because your spouse has no idea what you're talking about. The other option is basically this. You will move Christ out of the central place in your life. That's basically what happens between Christian and non-Christian. You lose transparency or you move Jesus out of central place in your relationships. And you lead, end up in a difficult relationship, in a difficult marriage. A third application. This is a tough one. Look for a comprehensive, according to Tim Keller, comprehensive attraction. Don't just look for charisma, looks. Don't just look for a handsome guy, an attractive woman who's smart and gets her humor, all things which are good. But look for character. Look for comprehensive attraction. Now, Lori Gottlieb, in 2008 article in The Atlantic, it reviewed a book that she wrote called Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And... What she says in this book, in the, in the prologue, which I thought was really funny, she says, imagine, and I, she's a woman, so she's talking about a woman's perspective. She says, imagine you go to the husband store, the husband department store, and then on the sign of the husband department store, it says, floor one, men who have good jobs. And you're shopping around, it says, that's pretty good, but I want more. On the second floor, it says, men who have good jobs, but also love kids. Okay, now we're starting to roll, we're getting a little better, but I still want more. Floor three says, men who have good jobs love kids and are extremely handsome. That's not bad, but I still want more. The fourth floor says, men who have good jobs, they love kids, are extremely handsome, and they help equally with the housework. Now we're really getting somewhere. Floor five says, men who have good jobs, love kids, are extremely handsome, help equally with the housework, and have a great sense of humor. That's fantastic. And then the top floor on floor six You have everything, but you are visitor 42,215,602 in line. And what you realize on floor six is that there are no men on this floor. It only exists to prove that women are impossible to please. Now, this is a woman. That's a quote. Thank you for shopping at the husband's store. And I'm sure that if there is a different perspective, men are going to be the same way. And her point is this, and I quote, 
What makes for a good marriage isn't necessarily what makes for a romantic relationship. It's not a passion fest in marriage. It's more a partnership. It's just your priorities change from romance to family, so the so-called deal breakers change. Some guys aren't worldly, but they make great dads and husbands. Now, she's a non-Christian, so I don't agree with everything. You still need romance in the marriage. It's not pragmatic. It is a romantic partnership, but I get her point. She says, you walk into a room and notice a guy who is maybe five feet tall, has a crooked nose, but he's caring and he understands you and he wants to know you and love you. And she's saying there are plenty of men who are like this, but they may be overweight, bald, or a little bit older. And she's very pragmatic, and this is something I kind of question. She says the problem with being picky, because she says I'm the picky one, is that we have an idealistic weight for a guy who would be a 10 out of 10, and we keep waiting for the 10, and suddenly we realize that all that's available to us is a 5, and then we realize we missed out on the 8. That, that's not gospel, by the way. That's just like, <laughs> I thought there's, it's just real. Because you need comprehensive attraction. You don't need K-pop drama. Crash Landing on You is it's just, it's just a funny show. You ain't going to meet a guy like that. <laughs> Doesn't exist. He's on the imaginary floor six. Comprehensive attraction and looking at their spiritual life and their goals and their dedication to Jesus, how they treat people. Look at the important things, because I do agree with Gottlieb that in some ways, romance, in some ways, that butterfly changes, and then once you get into marriage and family, you'll see what real gospel love looks like, only made power possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. Last but not least, before we finish this off, once you're in a relationship, test the infatuation. Make sure it's just not imaginary. Test the infatuation. Test, you, you get into a relationship, say, I love him, I love her, but test that. How do you test it? Get into an argument. The only way you could test the infatuation to see if it's real is that actually if you could resolve conflict. You have a cycle of repentance and forgiveness. Have each one of you shown that you could change because of the betterment of the other until you get into an argument and shown forgiveness, until you could change something out of love for the spouse. You haven't tested the infatuation, which means that you just have an infatuation. You got to test to see if it's real love. And according to the Apostle Paul, at least... Finally, get lots of community input. Don't start a shady relationship through your social media. Get your input. Get input from your parents, from your pastors and elders. Communal input into the person that you date. All around in Proverbs and even Song of Solomon is about the beautiful woman who engages in a relationship with a man, but she always gets input for her friends and her family. Get communal input because they will see things about you in that guy or girl that you won't. Let me end on this in verse 36 to 37. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his, his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. But whoever is firmly established in his heart under no necessity but having a desire to control and is determined that in his heart to keep her as a betrothed, he will do well. One commentator said this, singleness and marriage can both parade themselves as ultimate, promising to give your heart's desires but you'll fail. If your desire is to be single and autonomous, you'll fail. If your desire is to view marriage as your savior, you're going to fail. Because when Jesus came into the scene, he reveals the true value of both singleness and marriage and say they're both good, but they're not ultimate. He unmasks their true value. Some of you single people really want to get married, and that's good. 
And I wish I could tell you that you're going to get married, but I don't know. You may just be single for the rest of your life. Some of you who are married are in a really difficult marriage relationship, and you're saying, I want it to change in a week, and I wish it could, but I don't know if it will. It can certainly change by the grace of Jesus, but I don't know. But whether you're single or married, realize that your ultimate hope is not in singleness and marriage, but in Jesus. Jesus Christ is your perfect bridegroom. Jesus, he shows the ultimate way to live both single and married because he came into this world as a single man. But why did he come in this world as a single man? To marry the church like you and me, those who are broken and fallen and are sinners. Jesus shows what it means to be a single man in his earthly flesh, but he shows what it means to be a husband when he died on the cross. Whether you're single or married, there are both penultimate, second to last, because you have a better love than both in the undying love of a Savior who is dead but now is alive again. He came into this world as a beggar but rose as a king for you. Singles may be deathly afraid of marriage because you've been hurt in the past, but Jesus' love won't do that. It won't hurt you. It won't betray you. Jesus' love will never disappoint you. Jesus' love will never betray you. He'll stick with you to the end because he has united you to himself by faith and says, you are my bride in whom I have made clean and washed away with my blood to present you holy and blameless on the day of the second return of myself to take my bride home to the heavenly kingdom and the throne of God. Let's pray at this time. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word and Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, who has saved us and challenged us and renewed us, teaches us, sustains us, and is faithful to us. Lord, we are so such an adulterous people. We are people who are wayward and commit spiritual adultery in our sin and idolatry, but you save us and sustain us always, Lord God. And for that, we are eternally grateful and we worship you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.